Friends in Christ, let us pray once again. O Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Therefore, illumine now our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we might receive with joy what you have to say to us today. These prayers we make in the name of Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. Amen. The scripture lessons this morning come from the lectionary. The Old Testament lesson is Isaiah 40, verses 21 through 31. This is one of the most majestic texts in the Bible. It's often chosen to be read at memorial services, and so um, I pray that you would sink deeply into it as we hear these words once again. Listen now for God's word to you. Have you not known... Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is God who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to live in, who brings princes to naught and makes the rulers of the earth as nothing. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, when God blows upon them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host and numbers them calling them all by name, because he is great in strength, mighty in power. Not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and grow weary, and the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. And the New Testament lesson comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. Listen once again for the word of the Lord. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon Peter and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And Jesus cured many who were sick with various diseases and 
cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, Jesus got up and went to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon Peter and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. He answered, let us go on to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came to do. And Jesus went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you can walk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings, nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and which is more. You'll be a man, my son. These are the final lines to my favorite poem, which is simply titled If, by Rudyard Kipling, the English journalist and poet. And throughout the poem, Kipling describes the tensions we face in our lives between the various poles of human experience. Things like dreams and reality, triumph and disaster, faithfulness and betrayal. And in these final lines, Kipling addresses the challenge of maintaining coherence between our public and private lives. One must keep her virtue among crowds and must not lose the common touch when she walks among the powerful. One must be able to rally and lead others without being controlled by them. One must risk the perils of friendship without losing herself in others. In many ways, I think Kipling is sort of expounding the very same virtues that Jesus embodies in our text from Mark today. In these early days of Jesus' ministry, he's confronted with the pressures, the increasing pressures of his now public and increasingly popular ministry. And yet he maintains what Kipling calls the common touch. Jesus seems to move seamlessly between his public and private world's without altering who he is or what he has set out to do. The text begins on a Sabbath day in the village of Capernaum as Jesus concludes his teaching in the synagogue. It's already been quite a morning, for in the text just prior to today's lesson, he heals a man with an unclean spirit, and the congregation was amazed at him. From there, Jesus goes to Simon Peter's house with three of his other disciples. If you go to Capernaum today, you can visit the synagogue and Peter's house, which are very close to one another. Now, we don't know of any particular house in which Jesus lived, but it's likely he spent some good time here at Peter's house, because Peter was, after all, so far as we can tell from Scripture, Jesus' closest friend. In fact, archaeologists have discovered some writings on the walls of Peter's house that suggest that this was an early gathering place for Christians as early as the first century. So Jesus likely spent a lot of time 
in Peter's house. And as he enters the home, he crosses a sort of threshold between his public life in the synagogue and his private life in the home. He discovers immediately that Peter's mother-in-law is in bed with a fever, so he takes her by the hand and helps her to rise. Peter is believed to be the primary source behind Mark's gospel, and this account of Jesus' first healing in the narrative conveys the lovely aroma of a personal, meaningful memory, doesn't it? They told him about her right away, and he came, and he took her by the hand and lifted her up. It's as though Peter has this vivid recollection of this moment in his mind of Jesus taking his mother-in-law by the hand and helping her stand as her strength returns and as the fever recedes. Jesus and his disciples then proceed to enjoy a restful afternoon. Peter's mother-in-law serves them a meal and nothing else happens until sunset. Her service, by the way, is not a gendered kind of service. It cannot be called women's work. The verb to serve used here in Greek is diakoneo, from which we get our word deacon. It's the same word used, by the way, of the angel who attends to Jesus during his temptation in the wilderness. And it's the same word that Jesus will later use to describe his own ministry when he says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. This is compassionate service that tends to the needs of others in a way that brings strength and healing. It's what the ministry of our deacons aims to do. It describes Kipling's idea of the common touch, that is, personal, down-to-earth kindness. And so just as Jesus renewed Peter's mother-in-law's strength, she now does the same for him and for his disciples on this quiet afternoon at home after a busy morning in the synagogue. And in doing so, she embodies the ethic of the kingdom of God, that we're saved for service, given compassion to share compassion, healed to be healers. As evening arrives, things begin to pick up again and get busy. Sunset marked the end of the Sabbath day, and so people were free to move about once again. And so a crowd gathers around Peter's house as people from all over Capernaum bring to Jesus the sick and demon-possessed. And so now Jesus moves once again from the private life into the ho- in the home to his public ministry, and he heals many people among the throng who flocked to him. The next morning, Jesus arises early while it was still dark and goes off to pray. So once again, before resuming his public ministry, he takes some private time alone to tend to his own needs. He begins the day in prayer and solitude, knowing that much will be demanded of him in his upcoming daily work. Eventually, Peter and the other disciples find him and announce that everyone is looking for him. Where have you been? But Jesus refuses to lose himself among the masses. He refuses to exploit his popularity or allow it to dictate his sense of self or sense of purpose. And he says instead that it's time to move on to the next town. Though filled with compassion and love, Jesus is no people pleaser. He's done what he's called to do in Capernaum. 
And though his ministry remains in high demand there, he knows there's much more to be done elsewhere. So he sets out with the disciples, and they go on to the next village. Our text ends with a summary of subsequent events. Jesus went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. The sequence of events that Mark describes in our text today is his way of describing a day in the life of Jesus. Or I suppose two days, really, which together span a Sabbath day and an ordinary day, what for us might be a Sunday and a Monday. In modern terms, Jesus goes to church on Sunday and teaches Sunday school. He spends quiet time with his family in the afternoon, goes to a block party at the end of the day where he is the life of the party. The next morning, he gets up early for some time in quiet and solitude, and then he goes on to his work week with clarity and conviction about what he needs to accomplish that week. You see, the world Jesus is navigating here is really not all that different from our worlds, I don't think. He lives in a pressure cooker of expectations. Mark loves to use the word immediately throughout his gospel. He does so some 40 times, and a few times in our text today, immediately is a clear indication of the sort of urgency that seemed to stalk Jesus wherever he went. He's busy. A lot is asked of him, and he's pulled in a lot of different directions in one day in the life of Christ. Jesus has to balance his time between his professional life, if you will, as well as his family life and his time alone. He faces pressure to be the certain person that people want him to be, to recreate and live up to past deeds while also moving ahead to that which is next. He has family that depends on him for their care, friends who depend on him to lead them, and his own sense of what needs to be done. Don't some of these pressures resonate with your life? What Jesus demonstrates so beautifully throughout this narrative is how to maintain his true sense of self and purpose as he navigates these movements between his public and private life. Jesus is authentic and true to who he knows himself to be. He's no different among the crowds than he is among his closest friends. His compassion extends from Peter's mother-in-law to complete strangers who come to him in the crowds. The gospel he proclaims in the synagogue is the gospel he embodies when he is alone and in prayer. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's also the same among crowds, among his family, and by himself. Jesus makes it look easy to maintain consistency between the public and private self, but for most of us, it's not so straightforward, right? Who among us hasn't come home from a hard day of work in which we've kept it together by sheer willpower, only to then mistreat or ignore those we love the most in the world? Who among us hasn't gone along with the crowd, even when it meant saying or doing something that we don't believe to be right or true? Who among us hasn't skipped our daily prayer time because we don't think work can wait? The truth is that the person we present in public is a fragile facade 
if we're not indeed the same person in private. And the very best of who we are in private is of no use if we change who we are in public to conform to pressures of popularity. Sometimes our public and private selves are inconsistent and incongruent. Cynics might call it hypocrisy. Pragmatists might call it playing politics. But whatever it is, it's not Christ-like. This is where the essential value of prayer comes into play. When we begin the day in undistracted communion with God, as Jesus demonstrates in our text, we're centering ourselves in our core values on who we are in Christ. We're putting on the gospel before we dress for work, feasting on the word before we eat breakfast, grounding ourselves in the ethic of the kingdom of God before we hit the ground running. Prayer is preparation for action, but not a substitute for action. We should pray for those in need and then go out into the world and meet needs. We should pray for our loved ones, and then we should be attentive and present to them, taking them by the hand when they need us to be there. We should pray with words that we would honor God in word and deed, and then we should go out and honor God indeed. You see, each day we encounter the tension between our public and private lives in various ways, and we have an opportunity to make a faithful response. But will we allow crowds of followers on Instagram or YouTube to change the way we present ourselves? Will we allow a promotion and increasing responsibility at work to change how devoted we are to our family to our kids, to our parents? Will we allow our aging bodies to diminish our sense of usefulness and importance to younger generations in the kingdom of God? Now, don't get me wrong, this stuff isn't easy. Humans possess a resilient impulse to conform, don't we, in order to fit in to a certain group. We aren't going to get this right all of the time. And it's a moving target because our lives are constantly changing. Some of us go from single to married to three kids to empty nesters to retired to widows. Some of us go from student to employee to director to retired. Some of us go from extrovert to public speaker to writer to introvert. We move from one season of life to another, and each season presents new and unique challenges in both the public and private spheres of our lives. But the good news is that God's spirit is always stirring, ready to remake us more and more into the image of Christ, and ready to unite our public and private lives into deeper faithfulness to the one who gives us life. When we stumble and make mistakes, when we allow ourselves to get swept up in the pressure and expectation of our world, Jesus takes us by the hand and helps us to rise that we might continue to serve him despite our shortcomings. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., paraphrasing the author of Amazing Grace, John Newton, once said this, I may not be the man I want to be. I may not be the man I ought to be. I may not be the man I could be. I may not be the man I truly can be. 
but praise God, I'm not the man I once was. Such is the Christian life, the life of discipleship. So may our public and private lives together continually and increasingly reflect the one whom we serve, Jesus Christ our Lord, and who we are in him. May it be so. Alleluia, and thanks be to God. Amen.